I invite you to turn with me uh, to our text for this Lord's Day, as it's found in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Godly zeal may not be one of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, but it is a necessary grace in the life of a Christian without which a Christian will be left drifting along in a sea of lukewarmness, apathy, and indifference to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his glorious kingdom. When Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry in John chapter 2, drove the buyers and sellers of sacrificial animals out of the temple, turned over the tables of the money changers, chased them out with a whip as well, the Lord Jesus justified his actions by quoting the Messianic prophecy that is found in Psalm 69.9, which says, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, that is, consumed me. Though we are not called, dear ones, to imitate precisely every activity or event Jesus Christ brought in fulfillment of prophecy, we are surely to press forward and being conformed to his image in the spiritual graces which he possessed and thinking today of that grace of holy, godly zeal. Godly zeal, dear ones, was eminently present in the life and character of the Lord Jesus Christ and was manifested here in his cleansing the temple, not once, but twice. As those who have been redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are uh, to be a people who are, quote, zealous of good works, end of quote, in Titus 2.14. The Lord Jesus leaves believers no uh, option in the matter of whether they should be zealous or not when he commands in Revelation 3.19, be zealous. Be zealous. The root of this word, zeo, means to boil, to be hot. Godly zeal, ones, is a fervent and earnest desire and passion for Jesus Christ as opposed to a lukewarmness for Christ, a coldness that sits 
over our hearts and our minds for Christ. Godly zeal, dear ones, is not a mere profession of faith. Godly zeal is not a dead orthodoxy. Godly zeal is not a mere formal relationship with Jesus Christ. But godly zeal is a living and growing relationship with a crucified and risen Savior which can only live and grow in our lives from our familiarity with Christ, our communion with Jesus Christ, which can only grow, dear ones, as we grow in our understanding of His great love for us, His people. Dear ones, when the Lord and His truth are despised or are reviled by the world and sometimes even by the professing church, is it as if it were done to you personally because your heart beats so closely with the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ that you feel the pain, the suffering, along with Christ when people attack Christ? Does your heart burn in love and devotion to Christ or are there now only some smoldering embers of a fire that once burned brightly and fervently in your life. Dear ones, today is the day to repent of your lukewarmness, to renew that first love that you once had with Jesus Christ, and to be consumed with a holy zeal for the Lord and for the cause of Jesus Christ. As we consider our text in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48, the main points are these. First of all, zeal for God and his house. Luke 19:45. Second point, zeal for the nations. Luke 19:46. And thirdly, zeal for God is despised. In Luke 19, 47 through 48. Our first main point, zeal for God and his house. We read in Luke 19, 45. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought let me first begin with some background information to our text. After the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem on the first day of Christ's Passion Week, at which time, you recall, he was acclaimed by, uh, by the masses and by the multitudes that he was the Messianic King of Israel. Jesus, on that day, entered into the temple... And according to Mark 11.11, 11, when he entered in the temple, it says, He looked round about upon all things. 
And then they exited the temple. Afterwards, he left Jerusalem that evening and went to nearby Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, most likely to stay and spend the night in the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, his beloved friends, who lived there in Bethany. Now, the question is, what did he see in the temple uh, when he went that first, on that first day of the week, of his Passion Week? What did he see in the temple? He looked around, and then he left. After awakening on the second day of his Passion Week, that would have been our equivalent to Monday, Jesus and his disciples headed for Jerusalem once again. And along the way, Jesus became hungry. And seeing a fig tree off in the distance, he proceeded, as he grew closer to it and observed there was no fruit found upon it, he proceeded to curse this fig tree for not having any fruit upon it. Which was basically a symbol. Israel is referred to as a fig tree. It was a symbol of Christ's curse that was to fall upon Israel for having uh, been planted by the Lord and yet rejecting their Messiah and bringing forth no fruit to the glory of God. In fact, not only having rejected him, but soon to crucify him. To whom much is given, much is required. That held true with Israel, and it certainly holds true with all of us as well, as we consider the blessings of God that God has bestowed upon us. To whom much is given, much is required. In Luke 19.45, Christ and his disciples arrive in Jerusalem. And they ascend the heights of Mount Zion, where worshipers were gathering then in droves in order to celebrate the great feast of the Passover later on that same week. As the Lord approaches the temple and walks through the gates of the temple, the first courtyard which he would have entered was known as the Great Court or the court of the Gentiles, according to Josephus, an eminent Jewish historian of the first century. The court of the Gentiles was an immense, an immense open area wherein Gentiles were permitted to come to pray, to be instructed, and to seek the one true living God. Lord Jesus, in fact, taught on various occasions within that very area, on that spot uh, uh, called the, the court of the Gentiles. <clears throat> A wall separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple, and upon that wall was this warning written, No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whosoever should be caught will render himself liable to the death penalty which will inevitably follow. 
On the other side of this wall and up some stairs, the Gentiles could hear the prayers of both the men and the women of Israel calling out to the Lord, pouring their hearts out to God from the court of the women and from the court of Israel. When Christ had entered the, the temple, as we noted the day before, and as we noted, he looked around upon all things that were within this portion of the temple, that is, within the court of the Gentiles. We, know, we now learn, as we consider Luke 19.45, we now learn what he had seen in the temple the previous day. A profaning of the temple by making it an actual marketplace where live animals were being sold and money was being exchanged from foreign currency into the money of Israel to be able to pay for sacrifices, to be able to exchange money to pay their temple tribute, the temple tax as it was required in Exodus 30, verse 13. The initial uh, establishment of this marketplace within the temple would likely have just preceded the Lord's first cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Christ's ministry back in John chapter 2. It is now over three years later. And the marketplace within the temple has been reintroduced within the temple. Whether the marketplace within the temple was functioning in full force between the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Christ's ministry in John chapter 2 and the cleansing of the temple at the end of Christ's ministry here in Luke 19, we're not expressly told However, it seems very unlikely that the Lord, having cleansed the temple on one occasion in John 2, would have tolerated the profaning of the temple on subsequent occasions during his visits to the temple over a span of three years. And so it's more likely that this reestablishment, reintroduction of the marketplace within the temple happened shortly before Christ uh, entered the temple in Luke 19.45. Having now considered this background information, let's see the zeal of Christ for the house of God. Note how the Lord demonstrated his zeal. First, Christ cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and forced them to take with them all the animals and the items which they have brought into the temple. We read in Luke 19.45, And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought. Likewise in Matthew 21.12, the parallel passage, it says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. 
The Greek word that's used here for cast out, ekbalo, in Luke 19.45 is far from being a passive word. It is a very, very active word to cast out, to throw out. In fact, it's the same word that is used of Christ casting out the demons out of those who were afflicted by demons. The Lord did not politely ask these buyers and sellers if they would just please mind leaving and taking their animals with them. No, he cast them out. He threw them out. He chased them out. He used force. One man, he must have been, again, uh, such a figure of zeal for God that, the, that these, these who were there selling uh, didn't dare stand before him, didn't dare at all disobey him. No smile at all was seen at this time on Christ's face. No gentleness was observed in Christ's actions except that he could have he could have smitten them down with lightning right on the spot. So I suppose from that perspective, he was more gentle than he could have been. But he was chasing them out using force. Chase these profaners of God's holy house. Chase them into the streets. The second act of Christ's zeal and that proved the zeal of the Lord was that he overturned as we read in Matthew 21, 12, he overturned the tables of the money changers, wherein they made a, a, a significant and huge profit from their selling and exchanging money, charging interest on the money that they exchanged from one currency to another, or in order to you know, people coming from a distance couldn't bring all of their sacrificial animals with them, so they brought money, and they purchased. They would purchase the animals that they intended to sacrifice in Jerusalem, and then take those sacrifices that they had purchased, not in the temple or uh, not rightly within the temple, but where they had purchased them, take them to the temple to have them sacrificed on their behalf and on the behalf of their families. Consider here that the same divine power with which Christ drove out the money changers and overturned their tables, he could have just as efficaciously whispered in their ears and could have caused even the whisper of his voice to arouse such fear within them that they would all flee had he chosen to do so. And so why did he have such a demonstrable act in chasing them out, casting them out, turning over the money changers' tables? Well, I would submit to you that it was a demonstration of whose house this was. It was an outward, visible demonstration that he was the king. He was the messianic king. This was his house. And he did not appreciate 
but scorned and hated how his house had been profaned by those who were simply seeking to make a profit and merchandise that which was holy. And he also did so, I would submit to you, in order to show his holy indignation with those who did profane and treat as common and as ordinary his holy house. The third act that demonstrated the zeal of Christ for God's house was that he would not allow anyone to carry a common, ordinary vessel through the temple. The parallel passage in Mark eleven sixteen says concerning Christ, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. For only those vessels that were specifically set aside for holy use were to be employed within the temple. To bring an ordinary or common vessel into the holy place of God was to profane that holy temple by treating the temple as something just commonplace rather than something as holy. Dear ones, to profane God's name is not necessarily to utter blasphemous words of hatred towards God. That certainly is profaning God's name. But it's not only uttering blasphemous words and names toward God. It is rather, dear ones, profaning God and his name is rather treating the Most High God as if he was common and ordinary. To profane God's name is to trivialize the Most High God or that which he calls holy. Thus we may profane, dear ones, the name of the Lord by using his holy name to punctuate our sentences with, O Lord, or my God, without giving any thought to what we're even saying or why we're using that to simply interject like a comma in our sentences. We may profane the name of the Lord by bringing into public worship common vessels, as it were, which Christ has not appointed, which Christ has not ordained for his public worship within his church in the new covenant, whether hymns, man-inspired hymns, whether musical instruments, which he has not authorized and commanded in the New Covenant, whether images, whether choirs, whether holy days, whether wandering thoughts that we bring into the house of God, so easily distracted one way or another, that is, dear ones, a kind of profaning the name of the Lord to bring wandering thoughts into his holy presence. 
to bring our lack of preparation into his presence, where we have not given due diligence to pray, to set our hearts, our affections, our minds upon the Lord Jesus Christ before we gather to worship him on the Lord's day, is to profane and make common and ordinary the Lord. It's to treat him as we would any other person, that we'd simply show up. No big deal to approach the Lord our God with lukewarm hearts, cold affections. It's to treat him as common and ordinary. It's to profane his name. To come into his presence with faith in the preacher. Looking to the preacher rather than looking to God to challenge you. Looking to the Holy Spirit to convict you. Looking to Christ to apply his redemption in your lives. It is profaning the name of the Lord to have faith in outward ordinances which he has appointed but to have faith in the outward ordinance rather than faith in the living God dear ones we may profane the name of the Lord by our careless worldly speech and conduct on his Sabbath day We may profane the name of the Lord by disowning or neglecting lawful covenants by which we are bound, whether a marriage covenant, whether a baptismal covenant, whether a personal covenant that we have made with the Lord, whether ecclesiastical covenants or national covenants that are faithful We may profane the name of the Lord, dear ones, by using our bodies, by using our eyes, our ears, our words, our minds for vile purposes for which the Lord never intended our bodies to be used. For they are gifts given to us to be used for his glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Before leaving this first main point, I'd like to answer some proposed questions questions <clears throat> first of all Christ drove out those who profaned the Lord's house whose responsibility is it to do so now though none are called uh, to chase out of the church with physical force those who desecrate the church of Jesus Christ. It is the responsibility of those who are lawfully called as officers in Christ's church and to whom are given the keys of the kingdom, the key of knowledge, and the key of discipline 
to cast out the obstinate, to cast out the profane, to cast out the scandalous from Christ's church. In the New Testament, in fact, the church of Jesus Christ is called the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord. What was the house of the Lord in the Old Testament, the temple? God now calls his church, composed of those who profess faith in in Jesus Christ. Composed of those whom he has appointed to be a part of his his church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And this is speaking to the Corinthian believers. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, dwelleth in you as Christ's church? Just as the high priest and the subordinate priests were primarily responsible for the corruption of God's house back then, so the ministers and elders who tolerate and therefore promote corruption within Christ's church today must one day stand and give an account before the one who had such zeal for the house of the Lord that he cast out those who profaned it. It is also generally, dear ones, the responsibility of all believers to see that they examine their own hearts, examine their own lives, that they search their hearts and ask the Lord to reveal to them the iniquity, the sin, the transgressions within their own lives that they may confess them, that they may turn from them, that they may seek the grace of God through the the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to, to overcome them. It's generally, again, the responsibility of all believers to examine themselves that they do not profane God's name by their thoughts, their words, or deeds, and that they... Cast out that which is evil from them. Cast out that which is profane from them, out of their lives, by the power of the resurrected Christ, rather than tolerating such things as did the priesthood at the time of Christ. And that's why we find such language as this in Matthew 18, 8. The words of Jesus Christ where he says, Wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them. Cast them from thee. The same word. Cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. The second question. What if the officers of Christ's church will not fulfill their duty in reforming and purifying the church of Christ from corruption in doctrine, worship, and government? Just as the 
just as the, the high priest and the priesthood did not do so at the time of Christ by way of those who profaned the temple. Even though, dear ones, the high priest and the merchants, even though the priesthood in general had tolerated and had the more severe aggravation of sin in profaning the Lord's name because they had clearly the ability to stop it. All that participated in it, not merely the high priest, not merely the priesthood in general, not merely the, the, the sellers, but the buyers, the buyers that willingly participated in it profaned the name of the Lord as well. Dear ones, the only way for one to avoid pollution of corrupt doctrine and worship and government within a church is to remove, first of all, the beam from one's own eye Go in love to the leadership so as to have that corruption removed which profanes the name of the Lord and then to avoid such scandalous men if your faithful words fall upon deaf ears. In Romans sixteen seventeen, Now I beseech you, brethren, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Avoid them. Likewise in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 and 5. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness from such withdraw thyself. In a similar way, to participate in the profanity of others as a willing spectator or to join in laughing at that which profanes the name of the Lord is to share in their guilt. We become willing partakers, dear ones, of the sins of others by way of our consent to listen, laugh, and join with those who are profane, whether we are joining with them in the same room, whether we are listening to them or watching them on a radio or TV, an iPad, uh, iPod, or, a, or on the internet. We're not to have that type of a relationship with those who profane the name of the Lord. We're not to cozy up with them. Jesus did not eat with sinners, harlots, and tax collectors in order to enjoy their company or to listen to their profanity, but rather to lead them out of darkness and into light. I'm reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, 
nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And I'm also reminded of the attitude and the response of Jeremiah to the scornful, to the profane. In Jeremiah 17, 17, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 15, 17, where he says, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thy for thou hast filled me with indignation. Indignation, holy indignation for those who profane the name of the Lord. Third question. What inspired the high priest, the priesthood in general, the merchants and the money changers to so desecrate the house of the Lord? Covetousness, greed, which is idolatry, introducing into the house of God that which is not appointed by the Lord. They were robbing God in so doing. You see, it was not unlawful to sell animals to sacrifice or to exchange money from foreign currency so as to purchase the sacrifices that God required. What was covetous was that they desired to make a profit and a gain at the expense of that which was holy, that which God had appointed as his own and had never appointed animals or money changers to be brought into his holy house. This is very much what happens, dear ones, in churches and on TV and radio programs so often who are selling this or selling that, who are promising this or promising that to those who'll send $20 to those who'll send $50 to those who'll send $100. And it goes on and on and on. Merchandising the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus has said, freely you have received, freely give. Matthew 10, 8. Dear ones, Whatever we are willing to do for our own profit, for our own gain at the expense of God's revealed truth, is covetousness. Whether to gain a, a reputation for ourselves, for men, whether to gain or to make some financial gain, whether to gain some degree of power and authority, whether to gain the applause of men, whether to gain some type of a, a comfortable Christianity, 
in which we don't have to swim against the current. But can you just flow comfortably with everyone else in the same direction they're going? Or whether to gain even our own lives, dear ones, or to gain some supposed honor for God by filling the pews and reaching out to more people. <coughs> dear ones, it is ungodly gain when the truth of Jesus Christ must be compromised in order to make our Christianity comfortable to us. One of the greatest hindrances to godly zeal in our lives is indeed profaning the great and glorious name of the Lord. That is treating Christ and all that he calls holy as if it was common and ordinary. There is indeed a zeal that is without knowledge, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, speaking of the Jews. He says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. You see, this is not godly zeal, because zeal for the Lord must be, uh, must be founded upon sound doctrine and pure worship. However, having sound doctrine and pure worship does not necessarily guarantee a holy zeal to the Lord. For many, many, even ourselves, have put on, in our Christian life, have put on like an automatic pilot and simply gone through the outward motions of our faith and our Christianity, adhering to sound doctrine and pure worship, but simply going through the motions, that does not in and of itself ensure a holy and godly zeal. It must be based upon that. That must be part of its foundation, but it does not necessarily ensure it. Because, dear ones, that which brings about a holy and godly zeal in our lives it's a love for Jesus Christ. A commitment to Jesus Christ. Being sold out to Jesus Christ. Nothing more important than our Savior, our Lord, and His testimony in our lives. Dear ones, let it not be said of us, as Jesus said, the church of Sardis in Revelation 3.1, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. A dead orthodoxy. A holy zeal for the Lord will only be kept burning through a vital living union and communion with Jesus Christ. And where that grows cold, so will your zeal for the Lord. I have two more points, and they are very, very brief. First, the second point, zeal for the nations. Look with me at Luke 19.46. Saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den 
of thieves. Not only had the high priest and, and the merchants and the priesthood in general profaned the Lord's name, which is the supreme offense mentioned here, but they had also as well excluded the poor, sincere seekers of Jehovah among the Gentiles from the house of God by setting up their marketplace within the court of the Gentiles. The very place where the Gentiles were supposed to gather to be taught, instructed, to hear the prayers of God's people being offered for the nations, they had moved them out in order to make money for themselves. And instead of prayers coming forth from the court of the Gentiles, there's the bleating of sheep, the mooing of oxen that was coming forth from that place. The parallel passage in Mark eleven seventeen says this. This is what the Lord Jesus said. Uh, and he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. My house shall be called of all nations, by all nations, a house of prayer. Apparently, dear ones, this we find taken from this idea that, that the temple was also to include a place for the Gentiles, to reach out to the Gentiles so that the nations might be brought to God. You see, that was God's purpose all along. But Israel thought God's purpose all along was basically them not reaching out to the nations of this glorious good news of Jehovah's salvation. But in Isaiah 56, verse 7, we find these words. Even them, speaking of the nations, the Gentiles, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. For all people. Dear ones, we must never forget that zeal for the Lord's house will not only be evidenced in our desire for sound doctrine and pure worship, but also in our prayers and in our work for the ingathering of the nations and the return of Israel to the Lord. In our testimony, we share with our neighbors, with our co-workers, family members. Our zeal for the Lord must be evidenced in weeping, dear ones, for the lost to come to Jesus Christ. Our zeal for the Lord must be demonstrated in yearning that Christ fill his wedding feast with strangers and foreigners, with harlots 
and with publicans who know and acknowledge their desperate need for Jesus Christ. Christ did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Sinners whom he calls to repentance. The third and final point, zeal for God despised. In Luke 19, verses 47 through 48, we read, And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Finally, dear ones, consider the consequences of following in the footsteps of Christ's zeal in reforming his church. There will be those, just like there was with Christ, who sought to destroy him and did take his life later on that same week. And they will seek to malign, slander, destroy our testimony, and if they cannot silence us, destroy our lives. There will always be opposition to a holy zeal to reform the church of Jesus Christ. How comfortable and coddled we have become, dear ones, when we consider what our faithful forefathers who walked and blazed those paths of reformation before us, what they were willing to suffer to bring reformation to the church of Jesus Christ. And even faithful witnesses are willing to do today and willing to suffer today. Exile, isolation, privation of necessities, of life, persecution, fleeing for their own lives, imprisonment, torture, mockery, and death itself. Why? Why have they suffered such things? For the zeal that they had and those who do presently have for Christ and his church. The zeal that they have. They will not they will not be quiet. They will not be silent when it comes to reformation that Christ has purchased for his church. A lack of godly zeal and passion for Christ and his narrow path only points us, dear ones, to the fact that we have left our first love. That's really the issue at hand. When we see indifference, when we see complacency, when we see in our lives a neutrality, 
uh, a lukewarmness or even a coldness in our lives spiritually, we can trace it back to the fact that we have left our first love. That love that once burned so brightly in our lives for Jesus Christ is slowly going out. And as a result, what comes in is apathy and complacency and indifference and lukewarmness and even coldness within our hearts and within our lives. For godly zeal, dear ones, can only burn brightly in our lives when we are filled with and growing in knowledge of Christ's love for us, for sinners, and when we delight to spend time pouring out our hearts of love unto him. Now, as we all know, what happens in a marriage where a marital zeal and fervency that is hot is present in a marriage, it makes service to the one loved a joy and a delight. But we also no doubt know where that marital zeal is absent and where we have left our first love for our spouse. It makes our duties a heavy burden to carry and to bear. The answer to a fervent zeal for the Lord is a daily enjoyment of the love of the Father for you as his dear believing children. This was the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is what he prayed, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Dwell there. Find a welcome place of dwelling and abiding in your lives. Not in a strange place, but a familiar place in your lives. That ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Is that your prayer request? Is that what you are pleading with the Lord, that you might know, as Paul says, the breadth and length and depth and height of Christ's love for you? That is what will produce that zeal and keep that fire of zeal burning in your life. Samuel Rutherford, in his letters, letter 152, has this statement. Love, love, I mean Christ's love, is the hottest coal that ever I felt. Oh, but the smoke of it be hot. Cast all the salt sea on it. It will flame. Hell cannot quench it. Many, many waters will not quench love. Christ is turned over to his poor prisoner in a mass and globe 
of love. I wonder that he should waste so much love upon such a waster as I am. But he is no waster, but abundant in mercy. Dear ones, listen as I close to the invitation from Jesus Christ himself to you who are lukewarm in your faith, in your love, in your zeal for the Lord today. Don't continue in your apathy and indifference to Christ, to the gospel of Christ, to the commandments of God, to the doctrines of Jesus Christ, but come to the Lord and plead with him to heal you of the dreaded disease of complacency and lukewarmness and coldness and merely going through the motions of your faith. The words of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 3, verses 15 through 20, and the invitation at the very end is extended to us today. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. That's the invitation. Come today. Make it your prayer every day, dear ones, that zeal for Christ and his kingdom would consume you. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thou art most glorious, even beyond our imagination. What we could think or imagine can't even come close to how beautiful, glorious, loving, holy, gracious, merciful, righteous, Thou art, for O Lord our God, Thou art infinite. There are no boundaries to Thee. And Thou changest not. Lord God, we cast ourselves upon Thee, the living God today, calling upon Thee to light that fire of zeal in our lives. And Lord that it might not burn for an hour, that it might not burn for a day or two days or a week, but that God, that fire would continue to burn because, O oh Lord our God, we are being filled every single day 
and growing in the love of Jesus Christ, the love which Christ has for us, and then as we reciprocate our love for him. Our Lord, we plead with thee. Forgive us, O God, of our complacency and our lukewarmness, of our neutrality in the cause of Christ, trying to walk a comfortable Christianity. O Lord, cause us, our Lord, to be filled with the zeal of Christ, to walk the narrow path of righteousness and truth, no matter who may stand against us. We plead with thee, our God. Hear our prayers. For the sake of Jesus Christ, amen.